Looks like we're running live on Facebook. We are running live on Facebook. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. How are you? Good. Who are you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> you invited me here. I don't know who I am. <laughs> so my name is Trent Janish. I am a uh, personal coach and corporate trainer, and I work in the areas of emotional resilience and relationships, communication, and culture change. Nice. So can you break that down for us a little bit more? That's a lot of things you do. Yeah. I, uh, what would you like? More specific question, please. <laughs> well, that was what? Four different things? Yeah. What do you want to know about? What's the first, first one you said? Um, well, I work as a, a coach one-on-one -on -one with clients uh, internationally, uh, usually using Zoom. Usually Zoom. Cool. And where are your clients usually? Um, well, a lot in Canada, here in BC, um, and a couple actually in Ireland. I've had clients in Germany, Hong Kong, um, other places too, Florida, things like that. But um, yeah, and what I work on with people is difficult to describe, but the results are such that uh, their lives get moved into um, a whole new level of being. So part of it is understanding what habits are, understanding the mind, the brain, neurology, uh, the nerve, how emotions, what emotions are, how they're processed, how they affect us, uh, how emotions are actually operating systems that guide perception um, and your thought processes. So emotional resilience and resilience itself is something that is all about understanding well, resilience, just as a word, is about adapting, is how quickly you recover. And uh, so it's really about healing and growth. And healing and growth are essentially the, the same energy on two sides of a fence. If you can think about digging a hole, and there's a hole there, that if you make a practice of filling the hole, then it becomes level ground again. So we could think of that as healing. Yeah. But if you keep doing the same thing, adding the same energy to it, now it becomes a mound. That's growth. So the same energy that provides healing is the same energy that provides growth. It just depends on where you are in your life. So resilience is about adapting to change and understanding how to adapt to change. Um, if you're the one initiating the change, it's quite easy because everyone else now has to adapt. But if the change is happening uh, before you, then you have to change. And in nature, there's this wonderful law that says evolve or die. So you either adapt to the changes within the environment or you leave the environment. And um so with that uh a lot of you know I, I would say that in labeling what i do as resilience coaching as a lot of what other people would call stress management mm -hmm. but i'm not a fan of that term right in a more positive thing positive yeah. it's it's just a different way of framing a similar thing but the focus isn't so much on the stress it's on the relaxation it's it's the focus is on moving from the, the sympathetic to the parasympathetic it's about and people will, will also think about the difference between counseling and coaching because a number of my clients would be suffering say from anxiety or nervousness or depression or and <clears throat> part of resilience coaching is is about well the difference that i would define between healing and coach or uh counseling and coaching is that counseling is about the past and it's about healing 
whereas uh, coaching is about growth in the future. So I'm more focused on taking a look at where are you now, where would you like to be, and what's standing in the way, and let's grow through that. And if there's issues that come up from the past, we'll deal with them in the present moment as an emotional reaction to a memory. We'll deal with the emotion, neutralize it, and then grow from that. So it's less about getting mired in the past and in the stuff, and less about counseling, a lot more about coaching and moving forward and facilitating growth. Um, but because the same energy that facilitates healing is the same energy that facilitates growth, when you create a vision of what growth looks like, you're not so focused on what you're, you're not looking over your shoulder or what you're leaving, you're looking forward to where you're going. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so, and the And the thing, the, the advantage to that is if you're in the forest and a bear is chasing you and you're running for your life, looking over your shoulder at where the bear is, um, isn't so helpful because you could run into a tree or over a cliff. Mm-hmm. You got to kind of look at where you're going. You can glance really quick, see where it is, but then you need to focus on where you're headed and get there, right? So I think it's it's very, very important. Uh, this is, I see, how would I put this? This is why I choose to do what I do the way I do it. I love so, Great yeah. analogy with the bear chasing you and stuff. Okay. So it, it's good to know where you're coming from, obviously, but it's better to know where you are and where you want to be. Yeah. Awesome. So, and another thing that comes to mind as you say that, if you don't mind my... No. Okay. Is that it's, it's just sort of an insight that when you take a look around your current environment, everything that exists in this moment is an artifact of what has been up until now. So it's basically only an artifact of the past. Everything you're looking at is essentially the past. And a lot of people treat the current situation or the current environment as an indicator of what could be, and it's never an indicator of what could be. They're thinking that we're so conditioned to make our past our master, that the past vomits itself into the future, and, and we keep repeating patterns. Oh, this is just like it was before, so it's just going to be like that again. No, actually... Uh, our future is generated by what we decide in this moment, what actions we take. And if you take a different action, you're going to get a different result. But if you're allowing your emotion to hijack you and you're allowing yourself to be without knowing that you're allowing yourself, but this is what's happening uh, and you're running off of memory and looking at around you and thinking that everything that is, is all that could be you're, you're trapped, right? So realizing that, Everything that's happened to me and everything that I see around me is not an indicator of where I could be, what I can create, and what, 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 um, what can be. So it's not an indicator of potential in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Though people say, well, I've never done that before. So what? <laughs> when you were born, you didn't do anything before. Right? <laughs> so how did you get here, right? <laughs> so. It's choices. Yeah. So hopefully that answers the, a series of questions. Um, in terms of my one-on-one work, um, I'm turning that also into group work, like doing some, moving into group coaching and doing maybe some group work on online on Zoom. So group coaching online and teaching and coaching um, or training and coaching. With the corporate work that I do, I work with a partner, Mel Clifford, and we have a company called New Ways Education where we, you know, our little tagline is change made simple. Right. So it's really about distilling what are the needle movers uh, that create the change. And we've got a couple key uh, products. 
productized knowledge, if you will, uh, project game board or project management game board that's been designed by um, Mel, Clifford, Annie, McLeod, and myself. Um, but that focuses on project management for non-project managers. And it's a communication tool that helps everybody in the organization get on board and not interfere with the project, but work, help work together towards the success of all the projects. At the center of that is what we call another training program that stands alone, but is also part of the project management game board called the Foundation of Successful Teams. And that is a culture change program. It's all about developing a culture of mutual respect. But when you take a look at Harvard studies and other studies of uh, culture-focused companies versus non-culture-focused companies, and the statistics uh, as they pertain to employee engagement, bottom line, uh, net income, and so on, the results are night and day. You have a 1% improvement over 10 years or a 798% improvement over with the culture-focused companies. So it just makes sense. And I think that there's a bit of misunderstanding also around what culture is, because everyone seems to have their own definition. But we could just simply describe culture as the overall long-term mood at work. Mm. Right? So what's it like to work here? What's the mood at work consistently? And uh, what causes that? What are the components of that? And so we have a seven module program that we've put together that we've worked with companies. We've done beta testing here. We've worked with uh, bigger companies like Disney, Waterplay, uh, some oil and gas companies working with culture. And, and what we do is we, we do a two-hour program uh, one day every two weeks. And, in, and we teach the, the theory, if you would call it that, the essence of what we're talking about, distill it down to a single behavior and get them to practice that one behavior over the next two weeks. And then the next session... We coach on how did it go, what did you notice, what was the challenges, get that, and then we teach the next layer to distill that down into one behavior that actually dovetails very nicely with the first behavior, so the, the behavior starts to grow. And by the end of it, over 14 or 12 weeks, the last module, they're actually teaching us the course. So in doing that, they have to demonstrate to us that they don't need us anymore, and then we can move on. Otherwise, I'm saying, you guys are going to have to do this all over again. Give us another bunch of money. No, it's... But, uh, we got nothing but glowing results from that. And it really is like a lot of it, the, okay, well, if you know me, which you do, I'm a bookworm. So I love books. I listen to a lot more books than I read these days, but I consume, I don't know, five books a week, something like that. Like just, I just like it. And then I listen to a lot of books over and over again to regain new insights. Cause as I grow, the books are different, mm -hmm. even though it's the same book. So um, with that, one of my favorite books was called The One Thing. And with The One Thing, he talks a little bit about what people know as the Pareto Principle or the 80-20 rule. And he talks about how 20% of what we do produces 80% of the results. On average, it's not a hard rule, but it's, it's, it's small things create the big results. So if you do the 80-20 and you figure out what the 20% is that's moving the needle in your business or in your life, and then you look at that 20%, you realize that within that 20% is another 20-80 split. What's the 20% of the 20%? And then you look at that. And so 20% of that needle movers is actually moving the needle more than the other 80%. Mm -hmm. Then you go and zoom in again until you get down to the one thing. The one thing that moves the needle more than anything else. What is that? And, um, and that's what I focus on in my work with coaching and with teaching what are the key behaviors for 
creating a culture where people want to come to work. They, they work together, they collaborate, they, uh, there's mutual respect. There's, uh, there's a lot of care and concern for everyone. And it's just fun to be there that you actually wake up looking forward to going to work. Um, and, and then that same, the same principles work in families too. So it's sort of, uh, the same thing packaged a little differently for each thing. So that's sort of the corporate side of things. Is, is that a, a fuller picture of what I do? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's how I met you was, uh, seeing your, uh, your, um, business plan game board. Oh, uh, the project management. Like that's how I got introduced to you. So I was very impressed with that. So being 20 some odd years in the banking industry, I worked on so many projects and was very, very impressed with what you came up with. I wish we'd had that <laughs> on so many different things we did because uh, it made it simple. It was like, communication was excellent. But I loved how you described how you coach businesses to really work on the culture because that's huge. So what's the average time you usually spend with the company uh, coaching well, them every two weeks? This is a... These are packages, so um, and we customize them also for companies depending on what their needs are. The standardized, if you want to call it that, package would be, like I said, it's a 12-week program, so three months. Mm -hmm. So you have one in the beginning. There's a two-week spread, and then there's another one, and then there's, so there's seven of them. And it sounds like 14 weeks, but it's actually 12 weeks in between the seven modules, right? Yeah. And so with that also comes um, potential consulting. We also do a two-day workshop. Uh, we've developed a two-day workshop, which we've facilitated a couple times now, companies to sort of give them an introduction to the game board to foundation of successful teams. Um, sometimes they bring in the FST, what we call FST or PMGB, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they'll start with the culture, and then they, they learn about the game board, and then they want the game board, and then so it, it, it goes like that. Or they'll think about the game board, and then they bring in the culture piece because it's an mm -hmm. essential part, like because it's all about people. One of the questions we ask, we say, what's the difference between people and robots? Oh. <laughs> right. And the difference is that we have feelings, right? Wow, that's think? exactly right, yeah. Yeah, well, robots are highly efficient. And we talk about the difference between person and position, that a, a position is, in a company is nothing more than a set of responsibilities, and a person comes in to fill them. But that person is a human being, not a robot. Yeah. And so there are, the efficiency of their ability to, to perform those tasks and maintain those responsibilities is reliant upon their strengths, their weaknesses, their personalities, and very importantly, their mood. Yes. <laughs> and if we're not learning how to manage our mood, and, and now the, 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 the buzzword in, in the scientific um, community is self-regulation. Mm. We talk about managing our mood. It's all about self-regulation. So how do we self-regulate our emotional states? And when you recognize that an emotional state is literally an operating system, and if you play with the, uh, your <clears throat> perception, if you understand, you might even know right off from the heart. Like if I say, have you ever noticed that what you notice and what you pay attention to when you're happy is very different than what you notice or pay attention to when you're frustrated? Mm -hmm. And so you'll learn um, from a variety of different disciplines, whether it's anything from cognitive behavioral therapy to yoga to anything that you realize that emotion, what we call emotion, um, is the motion pattern of energy that's flowing through your nervous system or your body at any given time. If you go to HeartMath Institute, it's the electromagnetic field that your body's generating. And, and then you're basically, your body is bigger than your five senses can see because there's an electromagnetic field that is also part of your body that you're generating. And that has a current, that has information, and that is 
that is having an effect. So if you think of an emotion like a pool of water with a current in it, you're being moved by that current. So how your body moves when you're depressed, how a person walks when they're depressed as opposed to how they, they walk when they're confident, physiology is very different. So your emotion uh, controls, in essence, it's an operating system that determines your muscle tension, your breathing rate, your heart rate, your uh, galvanic skin response, like your, your perception, what you notice, what you pay attention to, and the kind of thoughts that you can actually have. So your thoughts, your focus of attention starts to generate feelings, but those feelings then sustain the thoughts and it becomes an engine that, that keeps running until you change your focus. So focus leads to feeling. And so when you know how to control your focus, you can start choosing how to feel. And people will only ever accept responsibility for what they feel they can control. Mm -hmm. And if they don't feel that they're in control of their emotions, you're stressing me out, you're pissing me off, you're the one that's, and then there's all this blame and then we try and control other people's behavior in order to manage our emotions, which is what's called codependency. Now I'm not responsible for my emotions, your behavior is, so you gotta be different. And that's, that's the, one of the key dysfunctions in almost, it's ubiquitous, it's not, I'm gonna say it's in every relationship, but it, you'll see it a lot in most every relationship, at home, at work, everything. And when you start to recognize that and accept responsibility for the things that you actually have control over and recognize that you do have control over what you can focus your attention upon, your feelings and all of that, you start self-regulating a lot better. Mm -hmm. And then you're blaming a lot less. You're not looking to control people and you're learning then to unconditionally love people for who they are as they are without needing to change them. All the conditional love is like, I'll love you if you behave this way or do this. But when you get into unconditional love, now you, you're in a position where you're holding space for people to express themselves honestly. And one of the key things in, in the workplace, based on a Google study, is something called psychological safety. And psychological safety is how safe do you feel expressing yourself, your mind, your opinion, and confronting people on an idea that you don't think is going to work for the company for the benefit of, of what, what it is. So... Psycho the, the, the secret that makes teams work together is how psychologically safe they feel. And the less psychologically safe they are, the less, uh, the, the less collaborative they are. And the more you get bullying and pushing and demanding rather than requesting. And, and, and then another element of what we work with um, and in my coaching and stuff is something called nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg, which is also in some fields called compassionate communication. But in his work, he, he wanted to know uh, how did we get into this way of speaking, which he calls the language of domination. And he found that it had been developed about 8,000 years ago. And you take a look at anthropological studies and, and this, this language of domination, of judgment, of right or wrong, good or bad, based on uh, what do you call it, uh, punishment and reward. He develops a whole mindset, which then Carol Dweck talks about, Dr. Carol Dweck in her book by the same name, Mindset, the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. So you can see fixed mindset leads to sort of a language of domination, whereas a growth mindset is open to learning. It's not so fixed in identity, and, and it's, it's not saying I am uh, stupid. I am learning from my mistakes. I am, you know, I can grow from this. And therefore, um, you're open to more ideas. You're more collaborative. And therefore, you you are a facilitator and of um, creating that psychological safety for the people around you. They feel safe expressing their opinions to you because you're not judging them. Does that make sense? And teenagers would love that. 
like the I like the blaming thing too because I managed people for a long, long time, and a lot of people would take responsibility for it. So you gave some great tips if you're the blamer. Uh, any suggestions if you're at the at the front end of the getting the blame? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, key questions, I suppose. Um, the, the again. People say what they say and think what they think and have the opinion they have because of the point on which they stand and view life from. We call that a point of view. But the, the unfortunate part is a lot of people think they are they, their point of view, but they're not. They're the, they're, they're the ones standing on the point, and you can move over to this other point. So um, people get locked into a way of thinking, and the best way to unlock that is to ask a, bit, a different question. Um, so, <clears throat> and this would get into the work of a great, another great book called, um, it's by Marilee Adams called, uh, change your questions, change your life. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how in companies you, you usually, if you think of yourself as the answer man and the answer woman, the person that knows the answers that you got to have the answers that, that you're, that, that you, you lose sight of the value of questions and that there are what she calls now this dovetails very nicely with the, the mindset work of Carol Dweck, where, um, she talks about a judger and a learner, and we can ask judger questions or learner questions. So a judger question is asking questions that seem to only validate the judgment that you've already made. So why am I so stupid? Why is this going wrong? What's wrong with these people? So all you're doing is, and I say that your brain is like a little loyal puppy named Google that will go and find any information that you tell it to fetch, like a stick. You say, why am I so stupid? And it goes, <laughs> and goes out gets you a stick and drops it here's why you're so stupid oh hang on there's more and then they go out and get some more and 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 pretty soon you got a whole pile of sticks and, and a bunch of information validating why you're so stupid and then how does that make you feel because now you're focusing on so whatever you ask your brain it shifts your focus so you use a question to shift your focus to shift your mood and so you can use questions and, and anyone that's in sales understands that whoever's asking the questions is in control of the conversation so there's a whole system called question-based selling, um, which is just using questions to guide a person's focus to where you want it to go. And, and uh, then they realize the benefit of having a certain product or service in their lives, right? Um, so how do you deal with the blamers? Well, it depends on the situation. That's kind of an open-ended question. It depends on the situation or context. But the, the general answer to that would be to ask an empowering question that would help them to see the ways in which they are responsible for their own suffering in, in, or whatever they're blaming you for. You know, like, um, yeah. Now, you had talked about breathing early on, and I, I believe you, well, I know you did, a breathing app or a breathing, breathing exercise for people? Yeah, how that came about, um, I was speaking at a collaborative law uh, in retreat for collaborative lawyers, and they brought me in to speak on um, uh, relationship dynamics and things like that, and I had met a doctor there that was also a speaker, and he was teaching on resonant breathing, mm -hmm. and so this was a number of years ago. And I asked him, you know, what is resonant breathing? And um, he showed, you know, what it was all about. And resonant breathing is basically, um, based on scientific studies, they found that if you're breathing about five and a half to six breaths per minute, you're maximizing, you're creating a coherent state within your body where the, what they call the oscillating system. So you've got a respiratory system, which you're breathing, your heart rate, 
uh, lymphatic, all of these different systems, they start moving in such a way that they're all helping each other out. So you're at, at, at a maximum efficiency um, with the least amount of energy. So you're getting the most result with the least amount of energy input. And they found that that breathing rate uh, was uh, ideal for that. And then the further studies had shown that if you do this breathing for 10 minutes a day for eight weeks, it uh, rewires your autonomic nervous system to reduce your anxiety, and so you become a lot more calm. So people that suffer from anxiety and nervousness, if they just did this breathing. So that inspired me to make a video, um, which basically has a bar going up with some nice music in the background, uh, saying inhale and then exhale. So you don't have to think about inhaling, you just follow along and listen to the music, and it goes for 10 minutes, it's on YouTube. So if you just search resonant breathing or put in Trent Janish, that video will come up. I think it's got 150,000 views or something. Wow. And I've gotten some great comments. It's on your website too, right? Yeah, it's on the website too, on the poweryour.com. So, and it's on the main page and people can just click on it and, and do it. And, um, you know, I got some really great comments. One, most, one of the more recent ones was talking about, wow, this really works. I was suffering from anxiety and blah, blah, blah. And now I feel so much better. And they're all excited. This is recommending it to people. Do this, do this, do this. And, you know, um, there's no ads on that. I don't want to make any money from that. I just want people to have a tool. There's nothing worse than you're watching it. And then an ad comes up. No, no ads. No ads. That's a free gift. Like, I just want people to understand that, that here's something that can really help you. Please use it. Um, so yes, thank you for asking about that. Great. And we were supposed to be at Indigo this weekend, so you could talk about your book and, but unfortunately, uh, with the situation as it is, we're, we're, we're not able to do that. So can you talk to me a bit about your book, Three Steps to Better Relationships? Well, there it is. <laughs> nice reveal. Nice reveal. <laughs> How's that? That's we get awesome. Perfect. There you go. There it is. <laughs> All right. Mwah. So, this book, uh, Three Steps to Better Relationships. Do you remember earlier when I was speaking about the one thing? Yeah. So, I wrote the book in, in 2012, or, um, and I released it as a Kindle um, book uh, in 2012. And Amazon Canada was just getting started at the time. And uh, through the promotion efforts and the people I knew at the time helping promote the book. I'm happy to say that, yes, it was a Canadian Amazon number one bestseller Yay. for a time in its category um, and top five within uh, or top, top seven in UK and, and the United States. So that was pretty cool at the time. So I got the screenshots to prove it, but it's, it's not a big deal. It, the, the thing is, um, it's, it's kind of like part of the platform when you're marketing. Hey, so, but the book itself, I, I love it. Um, <laughs> not because I wrote it, but because of, you know, I even read it once in a while, but not because I wrote it, but because, um, and, and this is part of a disclaimer that we use in our presentations when we're working with groups. And we say, look, we're not going to teach anything you don't already know. Sorry. A lot of times I said, you already know this stuff, but the real question is like a lot of people are sitting there say, teach me something new. I need to change. You know, it's not the new stuff. It's the stuff, you know, that you're not doing. That's so the thing is the question I want you to ask, if you hear me say something that you already know, don't say, I know that that's, you know, empty your cup and ask yourself, am I doing this consistently? Because if you're not doing it, what's the point in knowing it? 
So knowledge is like a steering wheel of a car, but you can't steer a parked car, right? It doesn't, it, it, you, you wanna be moving. So you gotta use what you know in order for it to be, so they say knowledge is power, no. Knowledge is potential power. Application of knowledge is power, right? That's, that's what power is. So um, the three steps to better relationships as it pertains to the one thing, I was thinking back in 2011 when I was writing that, <sighs> I don't think people are really reading anymore. I, what's the point in writing a book? But I still being encouraged to write a book. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, if, if there was one thing, just one thing that people should do in a relationship, that if they did it in any relationship, that if they did this one thing, their relationships would just get better and better. What's the needle mover? And I distilled it and I found it. And I said, ah, yeah, that is, that's the one thing. And then how is the next question? How do you do that? And so there's the three steps to doing this one thing. So the book is, you know, it's not too thick. It's pretty, pretty big print. You, <laughs> you can read it in an hour. And the essence of the book is, again, you may not learn anything that you don't already know, but you may get perspectives that you hadn't considered before, which is the, the real gem. And then the question is, because it's designed to be read in an hour and applied the same day, do this, do this, do this today, and keep practicing and watch the changes happen. Because, so a spoiler alert, here's the one thing, that if you do this one thing, all your relationships get better. And it is basically make a person feel heard and understood. That if you, and people say, oh, so it's all about listening. Well, it's more than that. It's, it's, I could listen to you, but you still may not feel heard or understood. So there's more to it. Um, but when you feel heard and understood, you've got, you, you feel validated, you feel honored, you feel valued, you feel respected, you feel important because someone has taken the time to hear you and, and put it inside of them now you have expanded into another person and it just makes you feel i'm real like you know the opposite of of feeling heard and understood is feeling unheard and misunderstood which is ignored and uh, abandoned or rejected so you think about homeless people a lot of them are just no one wants to see them or acknowledge them or say hi but some of us do smile and say hello how is your day going um, which I'm sure they love and appreciate. Well, I know they do. Um, so the, we, you know, if you'd never got acknowledged, you would feel like a ghost. You wouldn't even feel real. So you start to act up if you're a little one, especially, but you'll act up and you'll start doing loud things and breaking stuff just to get that attention. And when people yell in an argument, it's because they raise their voice because they don't feel heard. It's, this is just us expressing ourselves in all the ways and saying, you're not hearing me, <laughs> right? So maybe if I talk louder, it'll work. No, it doesn't work, actually. It doesn't work. But, um, so, and the book just talks about how to help people really feel heard and understood. Now, when that happens, and it's also, here's, here's another thing. Um, if you ever want to be heard and understood, that let's say I want to be heard and you want to be heard. And usually arguments or problems in all relationships come down to, you're not hearing me. I don't feel heard. You don't feel heard. Well, I'm not going to listen to you if you're not going to listen to me. Well, I'm not going to listen to you. And you're at a stalemate. Somebody has to go first. So if you make a habit out of making people feel heard and understood, and they've said their piece and they're like, oh, 
they got nothing left to say. They're just prime for listening at that point. They're just going to say, so can I share my thoughts with you? Yes, please. They want to reciprocate now because you've given them something so wonderful. I want to give back to you. I want, I want to hear what you have to say. So you almost feel like a magician when you really start making people feel heard and understood. You notice your relationship's getting better. Um, kids, for example, if you have little kids, mommy, 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 watch this, do this, mommy, mommy, look, look, look at me, mommy, daddy, 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 hey, hey. And you're like, oh my God, and everybody here now working at home with the COVID-19 thing, right? <laughs> what you want to do is stop what you're doing, get down on their level, look them in the eye, give them your full attention, listen to what they have to say, make them feel heard and understood, and their tank fills right up, and they won't be after you in five minutes again. They're good for an hour or two. Their tank is full till they run out, and then you do it again. But if you don't, you say, yeah, yeah, oh, that's really nice, honey, and then you compare, carry on with what you're doing. They're at, again, five minutes. You really, you make a person feel heard and understood, they're good to go for a while, you know, no matter their age, but it really works well with kids. So that's the essence of that book. And then I wanted to keep it really short and effective. And I thought, well, if people could read this and do it, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people just read the book to, to find something new. But there's nothing new under the sun. Everyone's saying the same. How many books are there on leadership? Oh, my God, right? And, and they're all going to say the same thing in their own different way. And who buys just one book on leadership? Nobody. They all buy five, six, seven, eight different books to get different perspectives. And that is the gem of reading a book is to gain perspective, to, to learn how to see through other people's eyes. And that's one of the steps in the books. It teaches you to look at a person uh, like a movie. So the, one of the keys here is to listen with the intention to understand the other person. Now that sounds logical, but most of us by habit listen to either agree or disagree. And that's very different. No, 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 I don't. So, and then we're preparing our, 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 our rebuttal in our minds and we're no longer listening. And it's like, no, no, this isn't how we ought to listen. We should just set yourself aside. So here's, when you're watching a movie, let's say it's Star Wars, because everybody knows Star Wars. And you don't sit there and say, I don't agree. I don't think there is such thing as a Luke Skywalker or a Death Star or anything. No, that's not the point of a movie. You're not there to agree or disagree with a movie. You're there to sort of just set yourself down and, and leave your identity outside the door or at the, on the floor while you pick up the popcorn and ask and sit inside a question. When you're watching a film, you're sitting in, inside a question and that question is, what would life be like if what I was witnessing was absolutely true? And then the movie provides you the experience of what life would be like if that was true. And so when you're in a relationship with anyone, friend, it doesn't matter who, when you're listening to understand, you put on your movie glasses and your movie ears and you set yourself aside and you say, what would life be like if what they were saying was absolutely true? And, and you don't have to agree or disagree with it. You're just experiencing what life is like through their eyes. It's like if you go to another country, let's say you go to Spain and you try the Spanish food and you, and you learn all these different Spanish customs and there's something that you love about it and other things that you don't love about it. While you're there, you're not going to say, I don't agree. You're just going to experience it. But then you go home and you keep what you love and you leave what you don't. And you incorporate some of the things that you learned when you were traveling through Spain into your life that, oh, you know, I really like this. And like Starbucks was uh, sort of formed by uh, Schultz's 
fascination with Italian coffee shops. And, and he said, these have a mood and people just sit there and they talk all day. He says, I want that in America. I want to see if I can figure out how to create that same ambiance here. And that's something that he took back with him. Sort of the impetus behind building Starbucks. That's my understanding of it anyway. And so when you are able to set yourself aside and see through the eyes of another person, um, knowing that there's got nothing to do with you, just because you can see through their eyes, doesn't mean you're agreeing with them. Because once you're done listening, you can say, hmm, there's some things that I liked about that, some things I don't, and I'll keep some. But it offers you the opportunity to actually listen without filters or as many filters as you would normally have. So an example of this might be like when I was 18, you know, you're still showboating for your buddies and stuff like that. And um, I had a girlfriend and she asked me like for her birthday, I said, what do you want for your birthday? She says, well, <laughs> and I lived in Edmonton at the time. She says, would you take me to the ballet? And I'm like, I, if I do that, I don't want anybody to know. I don't want guys to know I'm going to the ballet. You've got to kid me, right? And I said, I don't even like the ballet. Like, I, like I said, you want to go to the ballet? There's got to be something else. No, like how would a nice, no, no. She says, I really want to go to the ballet. There's, there's a production coming to the Jubilee Auditorium, I think it was. Uh, and I said, okay, we'll go. And I was thinking to myself, and it's pretty, pretty good for 18. I was thinking, Hmm, I got, I'm not going to, I don't want to go there and, you know, be like that. I want to know. So I asked her this key question that I kept with, I kept in my, in my arsenal of questions for the rest of my life. And I said, what do you love most about the ballet? Because I wanted to be able to see what she saw. Because she's just so enamored with the whole experience. She says, oh, I love the colors. Because it's always bright. And I love the lighting. I love the music. And I love the how cool. And the athleticism of, you know, like people, they make it look so effortless. But it is so hard. Because she had danced a, a while. And, and I'm like, oh, okay. And so I went. We watched a, a production of Cinderella. Which had, of course, the two ugly stepsisters played by men in drag, which I thought was hilarious, right? In a ballet, oh, they, so they showed they had a sense of humor and I thought, this is great, this is fun. And I saw through her eyes, the colors, the music, the athleticism, everything, the storytelling through movement. Um, and I gained an appreciation for it. There's, it's not like I'm gonna go to the ballet all the time, but it's like, now I know how to enjoy something, you know? So there's people that do things, like I've, I've had clients in the past that really enjoy hunting. I'm not, that's not my thing. But it's their thing. I said, what do you love most about that? And they would um, share what it was. And it wasn't the killing. It was the being out in nature. It was being connected. It's feeling more like you're part of the whole scene and reconnecting with our primal sort of self, which isn't the killer. It's just sort of understanding the, I don't know how to even describe it, but they have this light in their eyes. And, and I could understand that connection with nature. That part I really love. So I'm like, oh, I get that. So I, I gained more insight into who they were. Um, so there's a lot of people that do things that, um, that we may or may not agree with. But when you set that aside and just listen to understand, you start to gain insight to, to things that you would not have otherwise seen because you had your shields up all the time. And um, so it really makes for better relationships because again, listening to understand helps those people feel heard and understood. And then they're willing to listen to what you have to say, even though they don't, wouldn't have agreed with it before. So you can really open up some great conversations that create a lot more peace, you know? Um, so it's a way of being with each other that, 
creates a whole different world. Our entire world culture would change if we just changed that one thing. If we all worked on making people feel heard and understood, I really believe that this could, would change the world. But it's not this book. Where the message in there isn't even mine. It's just a truth that exists. And I've just given it a voice, as have hundreds, if not thousands, or millions of other people in their own way said the very same thing. So it's just another way of um, communicating. But like you say, some of us offer perspectives that are easier to understand or easier to absorb than others do. And, and that's why, you know, I think it's important to share your message, even though you may not think you're saying anything new, but you're saying it your way and in a way that people that, there's, that resonate with you will get it, that they wouldn't have otherwise got it. And that's the gift of everyone's unique perspective, I think. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I've read lots of leadership books and gone to lots of leadership courses. I love that it's simple and it's easy and it's something you can put in place, <clears throat> similar to your breathing thing. Just breathing mm -hmm. 10 minutes a day with that app, like that, that's not that much time, but it can be transformational, just like just using those three steps. And you gave some fantastic examples. I love the of watching a movie that's and your analogy with you go to Italy you love that and I loved it that was great because you almost need the context to understand it and incorporate it into your own life absolutely there's this wonderful video I show in some trainings that we do and uh, you find it on YouTube but it's uh, a little bit to do with the domino effect and there's uh, if you didn't know a domino can knock over another domino that's one and a half times bigger than it and so he's got this uh, one domino on the end that's about five or six feet tall, three feet, four feet wide, 100 pounds, and it goes all the way down to something that's, that he has to set up with tweezers. And those are 13 dominoes. So he says, ready? Boom, click, 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 click. <laughs> Last one crashes down. It all started from this tiny little domino. He says, that was 13 dominoes. If we did 27, the last domino would be as high as the Empire State Building. Mm. So this little tiny little thing could knock over the, the Empire State Building if the conditions were right, if all of the dominoes were in place. And I would love to, you know, have been, you know, in, in another time, like in the time of Kings or whatever, and say, I could knock over that tower with this little thing, and I built you all the gold. And they'd say, no. And then I would set everything up and knock it down and give me the gold, right? <laughs> Just 27 pieces. Just, yeah, hey, you know, it's, but uh, the point behind that visual is that little things can make a big difference when the conditions are right. And so a lot of what we talk about uh, culture is the, those are the conditions in which we are working. So what is the culture? It's the emotional environment. It's I was just, just going to say that the link between the book and your cultural thing too. Yeah. So. so culture is about how we treat each other. Mm -hmm. So it's all about relationships. Yes. And a relationship is a communicate or is a connection of influence. So influence comes from the Latin root influare, meaning to flow into. So a connection, like if I'm using a cell phone, in order for me to talk to you, there has to be a connection first. So we have to create a connection. And the connection between people is their attention. That's, that's the wireless connection. And then the information can pass through and flow into you, and it goes into your mind and into your heart, and then it moves you because you're now generating an emotion. It, emotion is basically information in motion, right? And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very specific type of current. And the more expansive the emotions, the more possibilities are available to you. So when you're happy, like there's this great saying by Dr. Albert Schweitzer, he says, success does not lead to happiness. Happiness leads to success. And there's a couple of great books in that by like Sean Acor called The Happiness Advantage. 
and his wife, um, Michelle Gielen, she wrote a book called uh, Broadcasting Happiness, how we're actually always broadcasting. And she comes from a broadcasting industry, so it was pretty cool. But happiness is a state of mind or a state of being that facilitates high engagement, uh, high productivity. There's, there's one quote from his book that I use that a, a brain at positive is, I think, 38% more productive than a brain at negative, neutral, or stressed. Or even 30%, one of the two. But that's a lot. That's a lot more productivity. By just managing the emotional state of the, of the room, and so what we, what we, what another thing that I work on with people is understanding that you are always, and this is what refers to, uh, let me just point to the power you are, right? <laughs> the power you are is not the power you have. There's no such thing. You know, the only power you have is what's given to you, but the power you are is what you embody. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther King Jr. would say that power is the ability to affect change, to create change. So if you can change something, that's power. And the more powerful you are, the more change you can create. So people have power, positions have power because of the agreements in place that says this position has the ability to, to govern over all of these. So when you're in a, uh, power is how much change you can affect within your own life and the lives of others. But I have this little argument that says that you, your presence alone, you don't have to say anything, do anything, your presence alone is power. So let's conjure up a scenario here. There you are in the days before COVID-19, enjoying a coffee in a coffee shop, wanting to be alone and read your book. It's a rainy day outside anyway. And you just say, you've got, you know, the leave me alone look on your face. And you're just reading your book and drinking coffee, having a nice little time. Well, someone comes in, buys a coffee, looks for a table to sit at, notices you, you happen to look up from your book and look at them and they look at you and they realize they're not going to sit beside you. Right? <laughs> you're looking up and you've got that, I want to be alone vibe, right? And, and you're like, okay. And they're like, look, oh, and then they go over. But there's something about the way that you look that reminded them of someone. They're like, my God, who does she remind me of? Oh, yeah, so-and-so from, um, from high school. God, and he Googles her. And then finds out, oh, God, she's, there's a phone number. Hey, you don't remember me? Oh, oh, they have this wonderful conversation. Realize they're living just a few blocks from each other, and they both have families, so they get together at the park, and the families meet each other, and they start a friendship again. And they, the teenage kids that they have meet each other, and a few years later, uh, two of the teenagers are now in their 20s and they get married and have a couple kids. And now there's two or three kids that are alive in the world that exist because you were having coffee in a coffee shop. It's crazy, isn't it? That is the power you are. Yeah. You are always influencing the world around you whether you like it or not. So here's another part that, that I share is one of the primary misperceptions that we have, and this is a fun one, I love displaying this on the, on the screen, but we think that we're in an environment. So you look out your eyes and you look around and you say, holy man, I'm surrounded. You know, like the whole world is surrounding me and I'm, and everything seems to be happening to me. So I'm in an environment and that's, you know, if you float out of your body and you look at yourself, you realize, no, I'm part of the environment. The environment is everything and you're part of everything. And therefore, everything that's happening to you, around you is in part an adaptation to your presence. So if you don't like what's going on around you, change how you are, because that's all you have control over, and you're changing the adaptive uh, behavior of everything around you, and suddenly your world becomes a better place. So the world is always a reflection of how you're interacting with it. It's a mirror of sorts. 
And uh, when you recognize that you're always influencing, um, the way I like to say it is you are power. Use yourself wisely. Oh, I like that. So when you're using yourself wisely, you understand that you're always influencing. So now why not be conscious of the influence that you have and use it wisely to create win-win situations and make the world a better place for everyone? Because if you think of life as a garden that you live in, you're the gardener. You know, do you just eat all the food and not water or weed? Well, it's going to, you're only taking, taking, taking. But if you nurture the garden, there's so much more for you. And another metaphor that you might like is that if you view all of the people in the world around you as piggy banks, and every time you go and make someone feel heard and understood and you acknowledge them, you're putting a coin in that bank, you're putting a coin in that bank, and you're putting a coin in that bank, you're making all of these wonderful deposits and building all of these and gaining a lot of interest. And what's happening is you're building a rich life for yourself. And if there's ever a time when you need to make a withdrawal, there's money in that bank. And I say, can you do me a favor? And they said, yes, I have all the time in the world for you, of course because you've invested already so much. So you can create a rich life for yourself just with <laughs> this <laughs> one thing, right? Yeah, just make no. people feel heard and understood. And when you, when you start to feel that, that's what I'm most passionate about is, do you understand this isn't a difficult thing, but what we must overcome is all of our old programming and our old habits and all of our blind spots. And that's what coaching is great for, is helping people eliminate blind spots. It's not that you don't know this stuff, it's just that you're not doing it and you don't know why you're not doing it. What is it that stops you? People know they should be eating healthier, they should be smiling more, they should be breathing deeper, they should be exercising, they should, but they don't do it. Why not? Because they don't understand what is stopping them um, and they can't put words around it. But if you've got someone in your life that's helping you put words around it and helping you see what, put a, a spotlight on stuff that you, oh, oh okay, ah, oh, and then lives change. So, I mean, I have a client that was ang high anxiety. Now, I'm not saying this is typical because they don't have a lot of clients with anxiety or on medication, but they continually reduce their medication because they develop skills that replace the pills. Right? <laughs> skills that replace the pills yeah well we're, that's part of my work i would say i'm replacing pills with skills yeah, right love it and the the thing is that when you're self-regulating you don't need the chemist the outer chemical to manage your inner chemistry you can use your your mind and your heart and your breathing and your perception to change the chemistry because what you focus on determines your feeling and and as dr joe Spencer would say that your emotions are your chemistry your neurochemistry, the chemical conditions within your body. Now, this is another thing that's, we could call that a culture in your body. So the conditions within your body um, is your inner culture. It's the set, like, and I, I always refer to soil conditions. So here's another, you're getting all these little gems. I love anyway. it, I love it. Well, I asked people, I said, does a vegetable farmer grow vegetables? People say yes, and I say no, because vegetables grow all by themselves. What farmers do is they create the right conditions for the vegetables to grow. They want to know what the right soil conditions and so you can't actually grow your children. They're going to grow all their own. What you want to do is create the right conditions for them to grow into the kinds of people that you want them to be. You can't grow a business, but you can create the right conditions in which that business could grow. You can only focus on what you can control and let go of what you can't. You can't control whether a seed is going to sprout and grow or not, but you can control the conditions in which it could grow. So you always want to create the right best conditions. So, um, yeah, there's so much I could share, but it's, this is, uh, so when we talk about emotions, emotions are like the soil conditions in which we are growing and your ability to grow is determined by, uh, your consistent emotional state, right? 
And we call that, uh, like, I like what Joe Dispenza talks about. He says, you know, in the short term, if you come into the work, uh, you're in a bad mood, something happens to you. Excuse me. Let's say you get into a car accident and you're like, ah, and you, you're angry and you come to work and, oh, boy, Trent's in a bad mood, right? But if I sustain that mood for a week or two or a month, every day, same thing. You say, whoa, Trent has kind of a, an angry temperament. So moods sustained become temperaments. And then when, um, if I sustain that temperament uh, for more months and years, and Trent's just an angry person, it's become an angry character. So mood to temperament to characters, like weather to climate, right? What you sustain over the long term. And we build habits and literally chemical addictions to our emotional patterns because of how cells work and their receptor sites. Uh, like for example, a cell has receptor sites for the chemicals say, of happiness or the chemicals of depression. And a receptor site is just like a little door with a special key lock that you need a key to get in. So uh, different uh, chemicals have their own doors that they go to open the door and go into the center of the cell and activate certain genes for that expression. So what happens now is um, if you're depressed, 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 the cells say they're always adapting to their environment too. Well, there's a lot of uh, depression cells coming. We should change out some of these doors. Let's get rid of the happiness doors. They're not being used and we'll replace them with the depression doors. So now you need more depression to activate these cells and so on. So you're, you're, it's like you need a bigger dose to get your hit, but you're also less likely to be happy because there's less happy doors, but you start practicing happiness and there's a great book called Hardwiring Happiness. And I'll tell you a little secret that he shares in that book. And you're literally rewiring yourself for happiness. But what happens, you start practicing happiness, releasing the chemicals of happiness. And then it says, hey, there's not so much. We should get rid of some of these depression doors and replace them with some of the happiness doors. And then it's easier for you to get happier. Right? So it's more uh, likely for that to happen. So um, Hardwiring Happiness, one of the things that he says that's a real gem from that book is if you focus, we have a tendency because of the brain's bias, it's got what's called a negative bias, and that's sort of a survival instinct thing, that if we were living in a natural environment, we, gotta, we know what's safe, so we don't need to pay attention to it. What we want to pay attention to is the stuff that isn't so safe and threatening. But we don't live in natural environments, we live in our own self-made environments now, so we're quite safe. There's no real predators or anything like that. But the brain isn't changed, so it's still looking for problems. It's looking for all the things, which is why we treat our family worse than anyone else. They're the safest, but we're, we're, it's okay to be, you know, negative. Uh, so it's not okay to be, but we think it is, or we treat it like it is. So with that, he says, we don't practice or develop the, uh, we don't condition ourselves and develop the habit of focusing on what is beautiful about life gratitude, appreciation, things like that. So when something happens that you appreciate, he says, stop, soak it in for 12 seconds. Spring it in. You'll allow yourself to, like someone, like he said, it started with him when he was a kid, actually. And he was one of those kids that was never picked for the sports teams or anything. And he's sort of the last pick. But, but the, on the moments, when they, they're, all oh, the guys are going to play soccer. He says, you want to play soccer with us? And he's like, you're asking me? Uh, yeah. Okay. But he, he, would, he would let them run off and he would just take a moment. He's like, wow, this really happened. And he would soak that in. And he didn't know that he was developing that skill as a kid, but then becoming a neuroscience and reflecting back on, oh, wow, this is really something. And then sharing it with us in his book. Uh, beautiful thing. Um, so as you practice that and as you practice these things, and these are some of the skills that help you replace the pills, right? When you start to understand brain and nervous system, emotional chemistry, not that you have to be a scientist in all of this. There's a lot of books out there that can make it usable for you, but I'll teach the tools that help people to, to do that. Another thing that people may not know, Deep breathing, like if you breathe into your belly, 
you're drawing air into the bottom of your lungs where the blood passes by to absorb the oxygen from your breathing. But if you're stressed, you, you naturally only breathe high up in the chest and not a lot of air is getting back down to the bottom of your lungs. So the difference between deep breathing and shallow breathing is that uh, the deep breathing creates a highly oxygenated environment within the blood, which means uh, it's what they call an aerobic environment. And in an aerobic environment, viruses and bacteria cannot exist. So when you're taking deep breaths and oxygenating your blood, you can't be susceptible to viruses or bacteria, or perhaps as susceptible. But when you're stressed all the time, like if, the, if you're watching the news a lot and you're in this stress and in this fear, when you're breathing shallow, 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 you're not getting enough oxygen. And so when you have an anaerobic environment in the blood, you, your, your, your body says, hey, we don't have the energy we need because there's no oxygen here. Well, let's get some sugar. So you start craving carbs, sugar, fats, and in a, a low uh, oxygen, high or an anaerobic environment with lots of sugar, that's where viruses and bacteria can really uh, proliferate. So breathe deep and slow into your belly. And part of activating the vagus nerve and, and moving from stress to relaxation is making sure that your exhale is slightly longer than your inhale. So you breathe in for three to five you know, breathe out for four to six. Just make sure you're exhaling just a bit longer and then that shifts you. You do that consistently. And if you can breathe five seconds in, six seconds out, you're starting the resonant breathing, you know? And by doing that, deep into making your belly go out so that you know your diaphragm's pushing down and drawing the air into the bottom of your lungs. You're, you're, or you could study the work of Wim Hof, the Wim Hof method. Mm -hmm. And his deep breathing is almost as hyperventilation. So he'll recommend that you're sitting on a bed. So if you <laughs> fall over, you're safe, you're okay. But there's nothing wrong with get, getting a little dizzy because you're really alkalizing your blood system and getting a lot of oxygen in, which again, makes you inhospitable to viruses and bacteria. So, which is quite relevant in today's situation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would say so. Well, that was amazing, Trent. I think I'll be listening to this on a regular basis. Uh, you shared so many amazing things. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate you're, it. You're inspiring just how your excitement about your knowledge and makes me want to read more. I'm a bot podcast junkie, so. Oh, uh, awesome. I think I'll start one. I, I'm thinking maybe about you should start one. That would be good, yeah. <laughs> Fun. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and sharing about your book and all the wonderful things you do. Uh, thanks for all the help you're doing with people out there. You're making a huge difference. And uh, I appreciate the time and, and for you inviting me to this interview. It's, it's great. Thank That's you. fantastic. Thanks, Trent. All right.